بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الحمد لله ان الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ارسله بالحق بشيرا ونذيرا بين يدي الساعه من يطع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعصهما فقد غوى حتى يفيء الى امر الله وانه لا يضر الا نفسه ولن يضر الله شيئا وقال الله عز من قائل اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respects and listeners assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh alhamdulillah for most of the evening you've been listening to various scholars speak about various aspects of imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi's person personality life and character and his learning considering that it's a subject of imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi there may be some degree of repetition but for the next 45 minutes or so what i wish to focus on is the legacy of imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi more than him as a person what he left behind what he bequeathed to this ummah and in order to understand that we need to know about the demography and the climate of iraq at the time of imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi i'll also mention a bit regarding how the fiqh of imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi eventually came about how it evolved and undoubtedly one of the most famous questions and allegations against imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi is that he and the scholars of his fiqh and his school of fiqh in general lack the knowledge of hadith and in fact many of the teachings and the tenets of the hanafi school of fiqh contradict the hadith of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam I'll address both these topics inshallah considering that it's only 45 minutes obviously I can't offer a comprehensive approach or answer to these issues but I hope to touch upon a few things that will shed some light and hopefully take us away from here with a better understanding of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi his teachings his fiqh and most importantly his position in the entire ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam many speak of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi disparagingly and very offensively and that's no surprise 
Imam Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani rahmatullahi alayhi. Someone informed him that people speak ill of you. Imam Muhammad was one of the most famous students of Imam Abu Hanifa. So Imam Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani rahmatullahi alayhi replied by saying, Alhamdulillah, all praise be to that Allah who has endowed me with such a position that people still point fingers at me, whether in a bad way. And Oscar Wilde, an English playwright and man of letters, said, there's only one thing worse than being spoken about. There's only one thing being worse than spoken about, and that is not to be spoken about at all. Imam Abu Hanifa was someone, and for someone as great as he was, who towered head and shoulders above most of the people in his time, his contemporaries, it's inevitable that there will be those who oppose him out of sheer envy, spite, hatred, or ignorance. And that's why one of the most famous ulama of hadith used to say, Imam Sufyan al-Thawri used to say himself, that anyone who hates Abu Hanifa or speaks ill of him can only be one of two people. Either he is completely ignorant, he's a jahil, or Imam, he is envious of Imam Abu Hanifa. And Imam Abu Hanifa's trial of being disparaged or spoken against, of being accused of the wildest of things, is no different to that of many great people. In fact, a poet says, Qila, إِنَّ اللَّهَ ذُو وَلَدٍ وَقِيلَ إِنَّ الرَّسُولَ قَدْ كَهَنَا مَا نَجَ اللَّهُ وَالرَّسُولُ مَعًا مِنْ لِسَانِ الْوَرَى فَكَيْفَ The poet says, it has been said that indeed Allah has a son. And it has also been claimed that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was a soothsayer. So if Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa both together have, beaten, have not been spared the tongues of mankind, then what about me? And another poem that many people would use about Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi is Hasad al Fata Idlam Yanab wa Sa'yahu, Fanasulahu Ada wa Khusumu, Kadara ilin Hasna iqun ali wajiha, Hasadan wa Bugdan innahuladameen. That they envied the young man when they could not keep up with his pace. So people are his adversaries and his enemies. Like the co-wives of a beautiful and fair maid who say of her that she is ugly, merely out of spite and envy. So they are unable to withstand his greatness, his knowledge, his piety, his standing. And when there is no argument, the next stage of the argument is character assassination. And that's all Imam Abu Hanifa has been a victim of. We do not claim that he is greater than he was. We do not wish to ascribe to him any more than what Allah had given him. And we do not wish to attribute to him in bigotry an ayatah more than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had bestowed upon him. But he, in his being a victim of such allegations and such abuse, is no different to, for instance, Sayyidina Ali radiyallahu Sayyidina Ali radiyallahu when he passed away, Many in the Ummah divided themselves, well, some in the Ummah divided themselves into two groups. There was one group 
that didn't stop at recognizing him for his virtue, but that elevated him to the rank of being a god. So they claim that Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu is God incarnate on earth. And there were others who went to the extreme of calling the beloved son-in-law of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and someone of the caliber of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu a disbeliever. So the same with Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi some have indeed fabricated hadith in honor of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi and we repudiate those and we absolve our any connection ourselves of any connection with them and at the same time there are those who've gone to the extreme of calling Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi al-dajjal so he is no different to the greats of history and of yore in that there are those who are go to both extremes. And our attitude should be of everyone in the ummah. Of him, his views, his works, his books, his writings, his teachings. Like Imam Shafi'i rahmatullahi alayhi said, Aballahu an ya'sima kitaban illa kitaba. Allah has refused to protect any book from error except his own book. There is only one book on earth which as Muslims we believe is free from any error. And that is the Quran of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Beyond that, we do not ascription. We do not ascribe infallibility and innocence and protection to anyone or anything else apart from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Anbiya alayhi wa salatu wa salam. But even in a balanced manner, let's consider the life of Imam Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi and his fiqh and how it evolved. In order to understand that, we need to look at a bit of history. After the time of Sayyidina, during the time of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu when Iraq was conquered, Iraq is not the same Iraq as we understand it. Just as Persia in Islamic writings is not the same Persia that we understand it to be. Iraq was much further to the east than it's considered now. And even Persia, most of Persia today, was included in the original Persia to be found in Islamic writings. But it was even further east. That's why modern day Afghanistan was actually considered part of Persia. And that's why Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi's grandfather was actually from Kabul. And even Imam Abu Dawood, the famous collector of hadith, he's from Sajistan, and Sajistan was in Afghanistan. So Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Abu Dawood, Sajistani, the famous collector of hadith, and many of the scholars were actually Afghani, in origin. So Iraq at that time, the ulama say that two cities were regarded as being the main areas of Iraq, and they were Kufa and Basra. During the reign of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu. Once Kufa had been set up as a new thriving city. Under the command of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab. He sent Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu as a teacher. And when he sent him as a teacher he actually wrote to the people of Kufa. Why was there a need to send someone of the caliber of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud to Kufa? Kufa became a stronghold. It was a military garrison city. 
it, became, it soon evolved into a melting pot of languages, cultures, and peoples. It was a center of riches for the Islamic Empire. And soon Kufa and Basra together became the two principal cities of Islam. So much so that not too long after Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab Sayyidina Ali being the son-in-law of Rasulullah the Amir of the Mu'mineen, the believers, he actually shifted the Islamic capital from Medina to Kufa. So that should tell us the position of the city of Kufa in the earliest days of Islam. So Sayyidina Umar foreseeing all of this, he sent the greatest teacher to them all, of them all. And that was Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu And he actually wrote to the people of Iraq saying to them, Ay Kufa, that I wanted to keep Abdullah ibn Mas'ud with me. And I benefit from his company. But I have given you privilege over myself of his company. Therefore look after him. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu traveled to Kufa. And there when he arrived he became the greatest teacher of the people of Kufa. The greatest authority. He wasn't the only one. Over time, gradually, so many Sahaba radiallahu anhum settled, resided, stayed for a while, passed through, and taught in Kufa that the numbers are immeasurable. which cannot put a number to them. Seventy of the veterans of the Battle of Badr became residents of the city of Kufa. Seventy of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum amongst the veterans of the Battle of Badr, they made Kufa their home city. 300 of those Sahaba radiyallahu anhum who in the 6th year of Hijrah had given bay'ah to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa beneath a tree in Hudaybiyah, 300 of those Sahaba radiyallahu anhum took a permanent residence in the city of Kufa. And some scholars have mentioned no fewer than 1,500 Sahaba radiallahu anhum who didn't just pass through, but who actually took a permanent residence in the city of Kufa. And amongst them was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu who towered above them all in learning. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu was sent with the primary purpose of teaching the people of Kufa. Thousands eventually graduated under him, according to some estimates. More than 4,000 scholars graduated under Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. And Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. A few years later, when Sayyidina Ali shifted the capital of Islam from Medina to Kufa, and he arrived in Kufa, when he saw the centers of learning, when he saw the scholarship, when he saw the preeminence of the scholars of Kufa in the sciences of Islam, this was Sayyidina Ali radiyallahu an. He remarked, Rahimallahu ibn Ummi Abd, qad mal'a hadhihi al-qariyat ilma. May Allah have mercy on Ibn Ummi Abd, a name of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Indeed, he has filled this city with knowledge. And in one narration he said, the Ashabu Abdullah, Surajahadihil Qariya, the students of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud are the lamps of the city of Kufa. Now, imagine the greatest expanding empire of the time, 
the seat of Khilafah, the capital of the ever-expanding Islamic empire, the most prominent city in the whole of the Islamic world, in many ways, in learning, in scholarship, in language, in poetry, and the political capital, and the largest military garrison, that was no small place. The best of the best resided there, and chief amongst them was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud as a teacher. Then Sayyidina Ali radiyallahu anhu continued to teach the people. And thus, I mention all of this to state that the learning of Kufa and the learning in the city of Basra and therefore the whole of Iraq which was the richest, the grandest and the most powerful part of the Islamic empire at the time all of this learning referred back to two noble Sahaba anhum. There were many. However, all of them were overshadowed by two individuals. And these two individuals were Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib The thousands of Sahaba who lived there, all taught, all narrated hadith, all passed on their learning, their wisdom and their teaching. But they were overshadowed by two great Sahaba, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Ali anhum. And many of the tabi'een used to say that we have sat with the, with the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. We're not even talking about the period after the companions. We're talking about the period of the companions themselves. They would say that we have sat with various Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And we have discovered that the knowledge of all the companions ultimately refers back to and ends with two individuals. Ali ibn Abi Talib and Abdullah ibn Masul. In fact, Imam Masruq rahmatullahi alayhi would say that I have sat with the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and I have found them to be like pools of water. There are some pools of water that provide water and that irrigate and quench the thirst of two people. And there are pools of water that provide water, irrigate and quench the thirst of ten people. And there are pools of water that provide water and irrigate and quench the thirst of a hundred people. And then there are those pools of water, which if all the people of the earth were to gather and come to that pool of water, their, quest, their thirst will be collectively quenched, and not one of them would go back without any, with any disappointment. One pool would be enough to irrigate all the people of the world. And that one pool, amongst the people of that one pool, is Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu. He described him as being a single pool who was sufficient to irrigate and water and quench the thirst of all the people of the world. And what he meant was in terms of knowledge, inspiration and piety. And these were the leading tabi'een who gave such verdicts. The successors to the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu. I mention this because this was the climate of learning. In this climate, which became the chief center of learning, not just for Fiqh. Fiqh came later. Qur'an, Qira'ah. The greatest imams of Qur'an whose Qira'ah we recite today were from Kufa. We all learn about Arabic. Arabic grammar was not set by the Bedouin of the Arabs. Arabic grammar and the laws of Arabic grammar were set by the scholars of Basra, but more importantly of Kufa. Kufa became a center of learning during that time, immediately after the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, of logic, 
of mathematics, of secular sciences, of hadith, of fiqh, of the Arabic language. It was the melting pot of languages, cultures, sciences and learning. In that environment, the greatest scholar, one of the greatest scholars who inherited all this knowledge of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Sayyidina Ali two of the chief scholars amongst the Tabi'een were Al-Qamah and Aswad and of their students, some of the chief, one, of the, one individual who inherited that knowledge and who was recognized as having inherited that knowledge and that treasure, and that, who succeeded, Al-Qama and Aswad, in that knowledge, was Imam Ibrahim al-Nakhari. He wasn't just one individual. He towered head and shoulders above everyone else. And the chief student of Ibrahim al-Nakhari was Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. And Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, his most famous and most brilliant student, who gained all of that knowledge that came trickling down from the companions and from the tabi'een, was none other than Imam Abu Hanifa. I mention this brief history to show that Imam Abu Hanifa was not in some forgotten part of the world or in a small village where he had a couple of students around him who he used to teach. Rather, Imam Abu Hanifa was the most leading imam of his time in the sciences of Islam, in the greatest capital of the Muslim world. And that's why when the Al-Mansur, when Al-Mansur, the Abbas al Khalif, when he wished to establish Baghdad as a brand new city, Baghdad was an amazing story. It was the first city in the world to actually have been planned from the very beginning and from the outset. The entire city was planned by engineers and architects, even before the first brick was laid. And this magnificent city, which eventually came to be known as a jewel of the East, the intellectual powerhouse of the whole world, not just of the Islamic world, this city, Baghdad, when Al-Mansur, the Abbas al-Khalif, wished to establish it, who did he want to make the chief judge of all the scholars of the Islamic world? None other than Imam Abu Hanifa, because of his position. Imam Abu Hanifa, refused for various reasons. And eventually he was punished, he was tortured. And despite being tortured, he remained unswerving, faithful and loyal to what he believed that he had inherited from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and the tabi'een. And as thus, he died a martyr at the hands of oppressors. That shows the climate of Kufa and of Baghdad. Imam Hanifa rahmatullahi spent some time in Baghdad as well, later when he was uh, still being prepared. With that history, let us realize that Imam Abu Hanifa when he taught, when he narrated, he was, the, he was at the climax and the peak of the peak. And Imam Abu Hanifa was, as was mentioned earlier, he was a master of the sciences. But he excelled in fiqh because ultimately fiqh is the distillation of religious knowledge. And this takes me to the next point, which is that why mention fiqh, 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 and no hadith and no Qur'an? Ultimately, there can be no understanding of the Qur'an and hadith without fiqh. That's a fact. The Qur'an and the hadith are two sources of raw information. 
unprocessed information. There is no way of understanding the Qur'an and the Hadith without the fiqh and the interpretation and explanation of the ulama. It's impossible. For instance, the Qur'an does not contain the description of salah. It doesn't. Nowhere in the Qur'an do you find a description of salah. Nowhere. Except for salatul khawf. But that's different. The normal everyday five times salah, you will not find this description anywhere in the Qur'an. And not even in great detail. You won't find even the major details and the most salient aspects of salah in the Qur'an. And that's our daily worship. So where do we get our salah from? And it's not just the hadith. Ultimately the Qur'an and the hadith are raw sources of information. And the ulama recognize that. For instance, let me relate a story about Imam A'mash rahmatullahi alayhi and Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi. Imam A'mash undisputedly is regarded as one of the greatest scholars of hadith. Without difference, without dispute. Imam A'mash rahmatullahi alayhi was once seated with Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi and he related, someone came and asked a couple of questions. So he directed these questions to Imam A'mash. Imam Amish turned to Imam Abu Hanifa and said to him, reply. So Imam Abu Hanifa replied to all of the questions. Imam Amish listened. And then when Imam Abu Hanifa had finished, Imam Amish said to him, where did you get these Masail from? Whence did you deliver these Masail? From where did you derive these Masail? So Imam Abu Hanifa said to Imam Amish, you related this hadith to me from Fula, from Fula, from Fula, from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You related this hadith to me from Fula, from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You related this hadith to me. And he mentioned a number of hadith that Imam Amish had related and that Imam Abu Hanifa had heard from him. And then Imam Abu Hanifa said, I derive this answer from this hadith, this answer from that hadith, and he listed all of, those, all of the hadith from which he had derived those masail and answers to the question. Imam Amish rahmatullahi said, Hasbuk, enough, enough. You relate to me in one moment all the hadith that are related to you in a hundred days? Ya ma'ashar al-fuqaha, antum al-atibba wa nahnu al-sayadila, wa anta ayyuha al-rajul akhath bikila al-tarafayn. He said to him, O assembly of jurists, O assembly of fuqaha, i.e. the plural of fuqih, the experts in fiqh, O assembly of fuqaha, you are the doctors, and we are the pharmacists. And you, O Abu Hanifa, you have taken both. What was Imam Amish rahmatullahi saying? Quite simply, that what we do is that we relate hadith, this is raw information. We are like pharmacists. We only dispense the medicine. We cannot diagnose any illness. We cannot provide any prescription. We cannot provide any diagnosis or prognosis. We cannot prescribe. We cannot assess. We cannot tell you what to take, how much to take, or whether it's going to be beneficial for you or not whether to use it, when to use it, and how to use it. 
This is the privilege of the experts in the field, the doctors. A pharmacy will just supply the medicine. So, oh, assembly of jurists, we are like the pharmacists. We have the collection of hadith, but that collection of hadith can only be put to genuine use by you jurists. And Abu Hanifa, you've taken both. You cannot be a faqih without being a muhaddith. A person cannot be a faqih or an expert in fiqh without being an expert in the Qur'an and the hadith. Because ultimately that's what fiqh is. It's a distillation and a refinement and a simplification of what the Qur'an and hadith contain. If you want to know how to pray salah, you cannot read the Qur'an. Because if you did, it would be to no avail, i.e. trying to look for the description of the salah in the Qur'an. You will not find it anywhere. You will not. And in the ahadith, there are thousands of ahadith, even they are scattered. And those who say it's fine, let's suffice with Bukhari. Even that's not an argument. Over the years I've been teaching the abridged version of Sahih al-Bukhari in English every week. Alhamdulillah, we've completed almost half of the book with a commentary. And one of the things that's become clear to many people, and that was also one of my aims, is how complex, how mind-bogglingly difficult understanding the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is. It's, it's almost an impossibility for the layperson and even for the ulama without the interpretation and the exposition of the other classical ulama again it's another imposs- impossibility. So the Qur'an and hadith are, raw, are sources of raw information. If you want to know how to pray salah, you will not be able to consult the Qur'an and come away with an understanding of the procedure of salah. You will have to resort to the books of fiqh, where the book of fiqh will simply tell you from beginning till end that this is how you pray. You won't delve into the evidences, the arguments, because they are too complex. As a Muslim, you simply want to know how to pray salah. And religious law is not just about salah. Religious law, may Allah have mercy on the ulama of Islam. They didn't just distill the salah for us. They distilled hundreds of thousands of masail from the Qur'an and hadith for us. And that's what used to happen during the time of Imam Hanifa. He wasn't just one teacher with a couple of students. Imam Abu Hanifa had a council of ulama. It was like a huge court. And in this court were the most brilliant minds, the most brilliant minds of this, uh, of Kufa, of Basra, and of Iraq. And Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi, before I continue, didn't just limit his learning to Iraq. He went to Medina on many occasions. It's said that he did Hajj 55 times. And on each occasion, without doubt, he met with the scholars of Mecca and of Medina. And that's why when the Abbasid Caliph, Mansur, he once summoned him, and he asked him, he said, Na'man, when he arrived, one of the courtiers and the scholars who was with Abbas, he said to him, here comes the most learned of the ummah. The most learned of the ummah. So Abbas, uh, so Al-Mansur, the Abbas al-Khalif, asked Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, oh Na'man, where did you get your knowledge from? So Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, replied, 
I have gained my knowledge from the companions of Umar ibn al-Khattab, Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Abbas, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu And the reason for mentioning these names is that the knowledge of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu was from his companions who were chiefly to be found in Medina and in Kufa. And the companions of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud in Kufa, the companions of Abdullah ibn Umar in Medina, and the companions of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma in Mecca. So wherever Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi went, for instance, when he would go to Mecca, the most famous student of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhu, Imam Atta, was Imam Abu Hanifa just one in the huge audience of Imam Atta rahmatullahi who narrated directly from Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma? No. The scholars say when Imam Abu Hanifa would walk in, Imam Atta would tell the whole audience to part and he would invite Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi to sit right in front of him. Hamad ibn Abi Suleiman in Kufa would do the same. No one would have permission to sit closer to him than Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi The same was in Medina, Kufa, in Mecca. So he visited all of these areas. So his knowledge wasn't limited to the knowledge of Iraq. Then when he would sit in his gathering in Kufa, he didn't just have a couple of students around him. The people around him were the most brilliant minds, the greatest scholars in their own right. That's why just one of his students, Imam Abu Yusuf, he then became the first Adil Qudat, the first chief judge of the whole of the Islamic Empire, with his capital in Baghdad. And if Imam Abu Yusuf wasn't the greatest at the time in the view of those who elected him and appointed him to that position, he would never be appointed to that position. And he was just one of the people who sat around Imam Abu Hanifa. So he had this whole council of ulama, the likes of Imam Hassan, Imam Zufar, Imam Abu Yusuf, Imam Muhammad, who themselves were the teachers of the most famous ulama of hadith. And what would happen? A question would be raised, would be raised, there would be discussion under the guidance and supervision of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi alayhi. Eventually, when the ulama would agree, or he would dictate uh, a final ruling, then all of the ulama would accept. Only then would it be considered part of the fiqh and the teachings for the people of Islam, for the ummah. So it was like a, the highest council of the most brilliant minds in the whole Ummah, who sat under him. Imam Abu Hanifa, his knowledge was preserved in that manner. That is the origin of the Hanafi school of fiqh. That is his legacy. That's why today, and this is no comment and no disparagement, and no detraction from the other schools of fiqh, we love and we revere all the ulama of Islam, without distinction. We love them and we revere them. If anyone has made errors, there is no one who is free from blemish and error. There is no book that is protected, as Imam Shafi'i rahmatullahi said, except the book of Allah. There is no individual, apart from the Anbiya alayhimu salatu who we regard as being infallible. For the Anbiya alayhimu salatu spoke of the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that we cannot attribute to anyone after them. So what I say is no detraction from the other imams of fiqh and their schools without doubt but it's a fact today most of the ummah follow the Hanafi school of fiqh and over the years 
It's the standing of the Hanafi school of fiqh and its complexity. That in matters of ibadah, even though in matters of personal worship, ulama may have resorted to other schools of fiqh when it came to finance, economics, and public administration, and the running of countries and empires, all the Islamic empires from that time till today, all the way till the Ottoman Khilafah, all of them relied only on the Hanafi school of fiqh. The reason is because the Hanafi school of fiqh under the supervision of Imam Abu Hanifa covered most aspects. One of the most famous books of Imam Abu Yusuf is Kitab al-Kharaj. And the Kitab al-Kharaj is a very complex book which he compiled for the Khalif Harun al-Rashid for the sake of the whole Abbasid Islamic empire in order to collect kharaj taxes and other income and how complex such a tax task was this whole body of law was founded on just one treatise written by Imam Abu Yusuf rahmatullahi that one book of one scholar in the council of Imam Abu Hanifa and that's been the case till today so when it comes to personal worship yes people may resort to other schools of fiqh but when it comes to finance economics uh, extensive legal laws, even political laws, even the laws of sayr, i.e. diplomacy and dealings with other countries throughout history, the ulama and the rulers have relied on the Hanafi school of fiqh. And can you imagine that all of that was set in the earliest days in the majlis of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi And as far as his relationship with hadith is concerned, like I said, people have gone to the extent of calling him, saying that he never knew Arabic. Imam Abu Hanifa was in the capital of the Islamic Empire. As I said, that soon became the center of poetry, of literature, of grammar, and of the highest sciences. It wasn't just a political capital, it was a scholarly capital. And the lingua franca, there was only one language, or the most common language, the lingua franca, was Arabic. And Imam Abu Hanifa presided over the greatest council of scholars and minds in the whole Ummah at that time. Can you imagine Imam Abu Hanifa not knowing Arabic? Him being chosen to be appointed to the chief, the chief judge of the whole empire? That's an accusation not even worth replying to. Another accusation famous is the question of Hadith, very famous allegation, quite simple. Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. Was there anyone who spent more time than, with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu? Was there anyone? No. From the very beginning, the first mu'min and the first khalifa. Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu spent more time with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam than anyone else. And quality time. Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu anhu used to say to Ummul Mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha, and he used to say in general, that I used to say to Abu Bakr, Oh Abu Bakr, you give me one night of yours and I am willing to give you my entire life. What night is that, O oh Umar? That one night that you spent with Rasulullah in the cave of Thawr at the time of Hijrah. Just one night when Allah called him his companion in the Quran. Meaning, he spent time, but give me just one of those nights. No one spent more time than Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. How many hadith does Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu relate? How many? 
Abu Hurairah radiallahu anh became Muslim in the seventh year of Hijrah. He only stayed three years with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Out of all of the Sahaba radiallahu anh, he is the most prolific narrator of hadith, more than 5,200. Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq relates a handful. Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiallahu anh, relates more than 5,200. Umm Habiba radiallahu anha is the beloved wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the princess of Makkah, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Rumlah bintu Abi Sufyan, Umm Habiba radiallahu anha. She lived as a wife with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And she lived for many years thereafter. In all her time with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and thereafter, Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu relates more than 5,200 hadith. Umm Habiba radiallahu anha relates four. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, a famous companion from the very beginning. How many ahadith does he relate? Umm al-Mu'mineen Sawdah radiyallahu anha, the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the exception of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, even collectively don't relate as many ahadith as some of the younger sahaba radiyallahu anhum. So the number of hadith that a person relates is no reflection of their standing in scholarship or their standing in piety or even their knowledge. There was no one more knowledgeable than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anha and yet how many ahadith do we hear of him? If the experts and the scholars of hadith regarded Imam Abu Hanifa as their master, Imam Abu, Imam Abu Yusuf, Imam Muhammad, Imam Zufar, Imam Al-Hassan, these were the teachers of the hadith. To give you some examples, we've all, we've all heard of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the famous scholar of hadith. It's mentioned that Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal memorized one million hadith. There are only a few thousand hadith, but when... Each hadith has a separate chain of narration. These separate chains of narration are in hadith terminology regarded as being two hadith. So the text may only be a few thousand hadith, but with different chains of narration, because the scholars would know their whole chain of narration. So with different chains of narration, can you imagine how complex that is? I narrate from Fuller, who narrates from Fuller. And then I narrate the same hadith from Fuller, who narrates from him, who narrates from him. In that manner, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi is reputed to have memorized one million hadith. One million. And that's no exaggeration, because his own musnad contains a minimum of 27,000 hadith. Published. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal memorized one million hadith. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal would say about Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, that any Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, Imam Ali ibn al-Madini, who was Imam Ali ibn al-Madini? Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi says, مَسْتَصْغَرَتُ نَفْسِي إِنَّ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا Ali ibn al-Madini. Imam Bukhari memorized 10 million hadith, and he was a computer. Imam Bukhari says, in my entire life, In my entire life, I have never considered myself small. I have never been intimidated by any scholar, with the exception of Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. The only one who would scare Imam Bukhari out of his wits was Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. Because of his standing in hadith and his scholarship. So I have never considered myself small. I have never been intimidated by anyone except Ali ibn al-Madini. That's who Ali ibn al-Madini was. So Imam Ali ibn al-Madini, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, and Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, and they would gather, this famous trio, they would gather and discuss hadith. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal says, we would discuss hadith and fiqh. When we would all differ, eventually we would turn to Imam Yahya ibn al-Ma'in, and we would say, what do you say about this? Whatever Imam Yahya ibn al-Ma'in would say, we would all accept. 
If that was Ali ibn al-Madini, and yet he would defer to the authority of Yahya ibn Ma'in. If that was Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who memorized a million hadith, yet he would defer to the authority of Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in. And Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in says, with these hands of mine, I have personally written 600,000 hadith. And in one narration, I have personally written one million. That's not the ones he knew by heart, it's what he had actually transcribed and written. And Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, he inherited one, over one million dirhams, that's about almost one million one hundred thousand pounds from his father. He spent every penny of it in the, in the search for hadith, so much so that in the end he became so poor he couldn't even afford sandals. One, over one million one hundred thousand pounds he spent on the search for hadith. This Yahya ibn Ma'in, of whom Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal says, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal had memorized one million hadith. And then he, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, says, any hadith that Yahya ibn Ma'in doesn't know is not a hadith. Who was Yahya ibn Ma'in? He was a student of Imam Abu Yusuf, and he would follow the Hanafi school of fiqh in such a degree that the ulama would say he would never depart from the teachings of Imam Abu Hanifa. Rahmatullahi if, if the Hanafi school of fiqh was founded on the opposition of hadith, and that was the like of Yahya ibn Ma'in, someone who had memorized, someone who Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal says, if Yahya ibn Ma'in doesn't know any hadith, there's no such hadith. And yet he was a follower of the Hanafi school of fiqh, and a student of Imam Abu Yusuf al-Qadi, one of the students of Imam Abu Hanifa. Same with Imam Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Qattan, Imam Waki ibn al-Jarrah, Imam Abdullah ibn Mubarak. These are names who are not normally known to be the students of Imam Abu Hanifa alayhi, or the ones who followed his school of fiqh. I'll end, there's very little time. I'd like to mention one thing, which is that as far as difference of opinion is concerned, Trust me, it's never going to be possible to unite the ummah on one qawl, on one verdict, on one fatwa. It's impossible. It's human nature. Allah says in the Quran, They will remain differing. That's human nature. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum differed on many issues. And you know, forget these small issues like, how do you do this and how don't you do that? I'm going to leave you with just one or two examples. What do you think is the most common thing that occurred during the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum that really shouldn't have seen any change at all? And which everyone knew and heard, children, adults, and men and women alike. I'll tell you. Is it salah? No. Because the Prophet wasallam used to be at the front. He used to lead salah as an imam at the front. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum were behind him. They wouldn't look around and they wouldn't look at him. And after salah, he would go straight home. He wouldn't pray his son and nawafil in the masjid. He used to pray at home, come to the masjid, lead, and he would lead at the front. And then he would go back. So the only ones who could report the method of salah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa were the ones who stood in the front row. And who would stand in the front row immediately behind him and adjacent to him? لِيَلِنِي مِنْكُمْ أُولُوا الْأَحْلَامِ The ones of wisdom and intelligence amongst you should stand with me. Abu Bakr, Umar ibn al-Khattab, the al-Ashrat al-Mubashara, and the likes of Abdullah ibn Masood radiallahu anhu stuck with him at all times. And then at home, it was the wives. So the salah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is not really a candidate for something which they can 
relate in thorough detail. That's why the ulama have concluded that from Allahu Akbar to Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah, there are more than 200 valid points of differences amongst the scholars of Islam. 200. 200. That's Salah. Other things, Zakah, Hajj, very complicated. But I'll tell you one thing which everybody knew. Adhan. True? It's whether someone came to the masjid or not. Whether someone saw them or not. Everyone could hear the Adhan. And the Adhan was initiated in the very earliest days of Islam, in the first year of Hijrah. For ten years, everyone heard Adhan five times a day. And there were, main, there were, there were two main Mu'adhins. Apart from the others, there were two main Mu'adhins. Abdullah ibn Maktoum and Ab, uh, Sayyidina Bilal ibn Rabah radiyallahu anhu. So do you think any, at least Adhan would be narrated to us and recorded for us without any difference of opinion? Yes? Yes? Adhan, five times a day, women at home, children at home, traders in the market, those walking the streets, those who never came to the masjid, five times a day. It wasn't a question of seeing, it was just a question of hearing. Five times a day, every day of the year, ten whole years. If there is one thing in which there should be no difference of opinion, then it would have been Adhan. But do you know, in Adhan and in Iqamah, all the four schools of fiqh differ. All of them differ. According to Imam Malik, there are only 13 words in Adhan, 13. According to Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, there are 15. According to Imam Shafi'i, there are 19. Meaning sentences, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. There's no difference in the wording, it's a question of whether you say it twice, once, or you repeat it three, four, four times. That's the difference. So there is a difference of opinion even about Adhan in all four schools of fiqh. And the same goes for Iqamah. None of the schools of the scholars agree in terms of the Adhan and the Iqamah. So there will always be a difference of opinion. Let's respect that difference of opinion and not try to argue for or clamor for the unattainable and the impossible. Another thing. I'll end with this. Finish. I'll end with this one final example. It's to do with hadith and fiqh. And he also answers a question about how come there are only this many hadith to his name? Imam Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, how many hadith does he have? Very few. Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullah was the first to pass away in 150 Hijri. Imam Malik rahmatullah, he passed away a number of years after him, 179 Hijrah. Imam Shafi'i, then later, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, right at the end. So these four scholars come, one after the, well, the, 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 obviously some of them uh, were contemporaries, but in terms of their dates of death, it's Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. People say there weren't many hadith in the time of Imam Hanifa That's why there are very few hadith attributed to him. So go back to the hadith and everything will be solved. That's the argument, isn't it? As long as you go back to the hadith and stop following opinions, you will be able to get the correct verdict. Imam Hanifa came first. There is no book of hadith that he wrote. That's well known. He never wrote a book of hadith. So he has... Zero hadith to his name except what others have attributed to him through other narrations, including his own students. But he has no book. Imam Malik came after him. Imam Malik has his famous Muwatta. But do you know how many hadith there are in Muwatta? The Muwatta of Imam Malik. How many hadith are there in the Muwatta of Imam Malik? Attributed directly to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa which we refer to as murfu' hadith. 
approximately 700. Only 700. Imam Malik, the Imam, had only approximately 700 hadith to his name in his Kitab Muwatta. Then who comes later? Imam Shafi'i. Imam Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi, has more hadith than Imam Malik, which he himself recorded. But not as many as the final one, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal's book is published, the Musnad of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, 27,000 hadith. So that means that if anyone's position should be clear, and if anyone should have no two different opinions, but only one opinion, who would it be? The final, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi. And yet you find in the books of fiqh, there are more variant narrations from Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal than any other scholar. You find one opinion in the Hanafi school of fiqh, two in the Maliki school of fiqh, three in the Shafi'i school of fiqh, and possibly four in the Hanbali school of fiqh from Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi himself. Uh, to give you one example, and that would never be the case if because there was access to the hadith, that meant that the f- p- verdict of fiqh would be clear. And I'll end with this. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi, I'll give you one masala and one example. When a person travels, and once he passes beyond the uh, well, necessary distance, or he intends, sorry, he intends a necessary distance for salah, we all know that, we all know that he does he truncates and shortens his prayer. So four raka'at become two raka'at. Now the question is, does he have to do two raka'at, or can he do four? I qasr, the shortening, is it obligatory or is it optional? Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi and the Hanafi scholars, they came first. Imam Abu Hanifa has zero hadith to his name, apparently. Would there be any confusion? Should there be confusion in the view of Abu Hanifa? Yes, because he never had a hadith. So Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi and the scholars of the Hanafi school of fiqh have one verdict, one verdict, and that is, it's wajib, it's necessary, you have to shorten the prayer. Imam Malik came later. He has 700 hadith to his name in his own book, Kitab al-Muwatta. Should there be any confusion since he has 700 hadith? No. Imam Malik, rahmatullahi, has two views. There are two narrations from Imam Malik. One of them is that it's sunnah al-Mu'akkadah to shorten the prayer. But you can still pray the full. Imam Shafi'i came later. He came much later. He had the benefit of all the previous scholarship as well as a collection of hadith. He has more hadith to his name than Imam Malik. Should he be in a more confused, well I wouldn't say confused, but should there be fewer narrations to his name about this masala or more? Fewer. Fewer, there, was, there should be no confusion. Imam Shafi'i rahmatullah has approximately three different narrations. But the most correct narration of is that it's permissible. Now Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal came much later. He was an imam of hadith. He had memorized one million hadith. His book has a collection of more than 27,000 hadith. Shouldn't that clarify everything? Because he had the hadith, shouldn't it? Imam, Mali, imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi has the following four narrations. Four to his name. One, he says, shortening the prayer is farv, it's obligatory. Second, shortening the prayer is sunnah. Third, both shortening or praying the full prayer are permissible, but shortening is better. And you know what the fourth narration is? Best. This is someone who had memorized one million hadith, a 27,000 hadith book collection, which is published and available. His fourth verdict was, I wish to be excused from answering this question. And I'll end with that. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kawthar Productions. 
For information on our products and services, please visit our website at www.akacademy.eu. We can also be contacted by phone on 0121-773-5191. Alternatively, you can write to us at AK Productions, PO Box 6008, Birmingham, B10-0UW, United Kingdom. All rights reserved for Alcothar Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.